Hello, Bonsai friends. This is Evan Pardue of Underhill Bonsai, and welcome to episode 55 of Little Things for Bonsai People. And this time I am joined by one of my co-hosts, Carmen Lesko-Vienski, or Let's Go, Vienski. Let's go. How's it going today? Pretty good. How are you? Great. I saw somebody drop that little, uh, that little like inside joke kind of weird comment that said that one time. I just had to say it again. I can't remember where I saw that. I think it was in I, I probably said it. No, someone else said it. it was pretty funny. It was, yeah. Actually, it was a little bit more abstract than that. I don't think it was the Discord. I think it was like no. a Facebook comment or something. It might have been. But anyway, so uh, today we have a special guest on our very show. Very special guest. A very well, special I guest. I want to say our number one fan. Well, <laughs> read her name every time first. Well, that's because, funny enough, uh, she was also the first person to subscribe to our patron list. I don't know if that's... Uh, yep. I don't, I don't want to make all the Patreons feel a certain way, but Tori Solis was our first sign-up, and also she's a ceramicist. We'll be talking with her today. How are you doing, Tori? I'm good. I'm having a good morning. <laughs> yeah. Great. Awesome. That's good to know because uh, we need to sound happy for this recording. We really uh, <laughs> I'm having a dark okay. time. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, but yeah, we're going to be talking about ceramics and the processes of ceramics. There's a lot of gaps uh, that could be filled in our knowledge for ceramics. It's... 50% of our show for bonsai. Uh, so, Tori, I'm sure you've got plenty of things you could tell us about, you know, the chemistry and the creation of ceramic vessels for bonsai and other things, right? Yeah, I'm an open book. Awesome. Where do you want to start? Uh, well, before we start, I do need to mention that our podcast, sorry to cut you off like that. Oh, you're good. Our podcast is sponsored by our patrons over on patreon.com forward slash little things for bonsai people. Head on over there and become a bonsai best bud. Um, and you can hang out in the Discord with these amazing people, starting off our list with Tori Solis, Vicky Auth, Vic, <laughs> Vicky Auth twice, uh, Boyd Snellgrove, Ricky Ruins, Joshua Bentley, Snappy Chatters, Joel Jenkins, Justin Knight, Backyard Bonsai Australia, Greenwich Gardens, Taylor Peacock, who pe- Taylor Peacock, <laughs> Chase Pertweet, Austin Atkins. Sometimes I'm really good at this, and sometimes it's just all over the place. Karen Codswell, and, uh, I saw a comment on this name. We're going to get it right today because they spelled it out for me phonetically. Un U N Bonsai Garden. There we go. I Lower, never would have guessed it that. But... Me, me either. I mean, it's literally in the like the way it's spelled. Sure. I can kind of see that, you know. AC Castle, Bonsai Marine, Joss Potts. I'm going to say it differently every time for you. Chris Fassoon, Timothy Arsenal, Randy Bennett, uh, Vic Trina Ridgeway. Yeah. Okay. Laron's Bonsai Yard. Thank you guys <laughs> so much for being a Bonsai Best Bud, sponsoring our show, helping us grow. Um, it's it's awesome to have such a strong community, especially in our Discord where people just chat and just hang out, talk about Bonsai, um, and you know just have you know good vibes. It's a it's a space to hang out and just kind of be yourself in Bonsai, in Bonsai within Bonsai. But anyway. Um, but also I need to mention that our editor, Matt O'Donnell, he makes us sound smart. He cleans up the audio, makes us enjoyable to listen to you. Go over to mattodonnell.com to fill out a contact form and start your own, bo- your own, not your own po- bonsai podcast, but we do need more bonsai podcasts out there to start your own podcast show and audio engineering project with him. He's a set basis living in Nashville, Tennessee, and he's all around, all around awesome guy. Say it in the script. Every single time it is written down, I have to say it. I'm 
just but like he's, he's also awesome regardless of the script. I'm full of it today. I'm full of like yeah. the stutters and the mispronunciations. I got the script right in front of me. But it's it's the holidays. You can be oh, however yeah. you want. I'm giddy because I get to have like one full day off this week. Um, <laughs> but also, uh, guys, just one more thing. Go over and go to underhillbonesizestore.com. Go to the Little Things tab and buy your Little Things shirt before we sell out of our current run. We have a couple of smalls, mediums, um, and barely any larges and extra larges left. So I think once we run out of the larges and extra larges, I'll run the next print run because the smalls and mediums will probably... Well, the mediums went quicker, but the smalls uh-huh. will probably run out of those slow. But slow. anyway... All right. Well, uh, how was it going, Tori? It's good. I got up super early this morning and threw 10 mugs, and now they're all just chilling. And by the time we're done with this, I might be able to get them off the bats. Yeah. Okay. So where are you located again? Uh, I'm in the, uh, the urban sprawl of Dallas, Texas, kind of like uh, an hour from Dallas. But if okay. you were anywhere else, it might just be 20 minutes. Okay. Hey. <laughs> I understand that feeling. <laughs> yeah, because of... Uh, the high density of Dallas. I mean, yeah. that's that's one of the biggest cities just like of all time, right? I, so. I really like it, actually. I've lived in three big cities and this one's my favorite one so far. Oh, cool. Yeah. But, what other cities? Uh, as, uh, as a kid, I grew up around the St. Louis area. Oh, uh, cool. So the uh, Eureka, but, you know, we were in St. Louis a lot, so I was familiar with that urban area. And then for uh, high school and college, I went to Jacksonville University. So I was in Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, Jacksonville is the scariest city I ever lived in. Um, but <laughs> Dallas is really nice. Like you yeah. can find everything in Dallas. It's really, it just takes forever to get there. And the traffic mm-hmm. is her- a trend, atrocious, atrocious. There we yeah. go. But it's, uh, it's cool. It's a cool city. Yeah. I've only been to the airport, but. I remember flying over and thinking, oh, my God, this is huge. Like, there was just so much development. Yeah, it's kind of sad. That part of it is kind of a bummer to me, honestly. Like, Mm -hmm. when I drive past, like, when I moved here, I've been here for 10 years now. And when I moved here, you drive into Dallas, you see the fields and the flowers and all that. And, like, more and more, it's just, like, a big lots. And it really breaks my heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's that's most large cities, too. Like, I know, like... I've been to Austin. Austin's great, but it kind of has that same kind of feel where it's just ever expanding. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't really have much to expand out to unless they really want to be in the foothills. So it's it's like pushing in all these mm-hmm. new condominiums and all this stuff. Um, and I mean, as far as Texas goes, I've been to just about all of y'all's, all of y'all's, all of, all of <laughs> the major cities. Um, I mean, like I said, Austin, Houston is probably... Like you said, scary cities. Like I'm just <laughs> driving around Houston is something else. Uh, but Dallas, uh, Fort Worth. I mean that people don't really uh, realize that there's also Fort Worth like directly across like a canal. Uh, I think is that right, Tori? Yeah, they're over there. They like they're over there. <laughs> it, well, <laughs> no, we love Fort Worth. Don't get me wrong, but it has always felt like a separate entity. Like the people have a distinction and they like to be Fort Worth and they like the DFW thing is a little like, like we're all homies. We don't like not like each other, but everyone's kind of like we're Fort, we like our Fort Worth and we like, oh, this is Dallas. And there is like a a separate identity for the people. (laughs) It's Uh, so fun fact. um, King of the Hill 
the, oh. the fictional town that he lives in is like supposed to be right outside of Dallas Fort Worth. Oh, so I am like the biggest King of the Hill fan ever. I'm actually Excellent. in the process of watching it again for like the second time all the way through. Like we like to watch it in order because there's like a character progression. It's like the best American anime. Oh, thank but, you. But like besides Avatar: The Last Airbender. King okay, of the Hill. that's a good one too. I love, <laughs> but I love King of the Hill, and like we 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 really thought about this, and we've decided that they live in Arlington. That's what we think. I don't know. It's like where Six Flags is. Like that's where we theorize that they kind of are, because it's like not exactly in Dallas, but it's like one of those suburbs right there. Mm-hmm. That's our guess. Yeah, I think that a lot of a lot of uh, fan theory has kind of pointed to that spot too. Because you can see the high rises and the overpasses and stuff from some perspectives of their neighborhood, but this isn't an animation and anime podcast, though. But are you sure, though? Because I, I, I think know. we're getting into some conspiracy theories here about. Oh, I could go that, into the Edit yeah, and Eddie conspiracy is. theories for days. So, um, anyway, so Tori, <laughs> tell us how you got into ceramics. All right, so this is really weird because, like, I just felt like it was something I wanted to do one day. Like recently, I, I, okay, so I was a painter for a long time. I did painting in college and then I just did pet portraits. Okay. And then I switched into 3D by getting into jewelry design and kind of played with that. And then one day I'm like running successful jewelry design, Etsy thing. And I'm like, you know what? I want to do clay. And then I started watching YouTube videos and watching people throw. And I was like, I want to throw. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to do this because it was just one of those, I get these really strong intuitive kind of knowings. And this was one of those things that like, I was like, I got to do this. It's weird. Uh, it seems impulsive, but it, they're stronger. Are feel, the feelings are stronger than just impulsion for something like this. Mm-hmm. And then I looked on eBay for like pottery wheel and I found a Shimpo Aspire on eBay one yeah. town away from me. So I just messaged the seller was like, I will come pick it up for the buy it now tomorrow oh wow so this was in a time and like i'd started in like 2021 basically 2020 2021 something around there so like pottery wheels were like really back stocked at this time like if you were to buy one new you would have had to wait like six to nine weeks because of everybody wanting one so i was able to just go and get this one which was kind of great and then i started throwing I had watched videos. I had bought some clay. I kind of did a lot of research and I was like, all right, I'm going to do the thing now. I've read all the books. It's time to do it. And I made a YouTube channel um, from day one. My first YouTube video ever was the first day I ever touched clay. It was the first day I ever used the wheel and I figured it out. And it uh, felt like it came really naturally to me. Not that I don't need to like practice and that I'm not forever going to be getting better, but like I, it wasn't a struggle. I learned to center and throw pretty quickly. Like I got the basics down pretty fast and it felt like something I should be doing. And now I, now I done made a potter of myself. So. That's awesome. It's <laughs> kind of like all the stars aligned properly and you were able to like just get right into it right when you wanted to and it, follow that urge to, to create. That's really cool. I love when that happens. And, and uh, are you just a full-time artist uh, slash potter? Is that kind of what you do now? Yeah, I'm doing uh, full-time pottery. I'm My husband, is uh, he works a, a job that gets us health insurance and stuff, so he's helpful and supportive. Um, then I am potting, potting hard. I, like make a, I do a lot of drinkware, and mm-hmm. uh, I love making bonsai pots, so I do a lot of bonsai pots too, and... Yeah, bonsai pots, drinkware, and sometimes some jars and stuff if I feel the desire. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what's the name of your YouTube channel? 
Is it Blue Nose? Um, it's all Blue Nose Trading. I just made like a business name based off my dog. Uh, she's a Blue Nose Pitbull. And um, I was like, we're going to, it's just an encompassing all catch all for every production and journey I go on. Yeah. So Blue Nose Trading. I'm just making sure that, uh, look that up really quick. It's, yeah, it's very straightforward and easy to get to. Okay, cool. Yeah, because uh, we go over to YouTube and see that there. I know you also utilize your Instagram quite a good bit, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, well. you're constantly posting new stuff. I mean, that's kind of how you have to be, uh, especially when you're a creative and you're looking to make a, a business and a living out of this. You constantly need to be showing people what you're doing. And uh, you've definitely been uh, grinding on that for sure. Thanks. I'm relentless. Yeah, you, you have to. You have to be. Yeah. I, that's how I feel about it, and it, mm-hmm. and it doesn't always get any attention. Honestly, like it's not like yeah. I'm posting, and 400 people are like, "Wow!" It's like not like that. I just am like, I have to just keep doing this. It's just a discipline at this yeah, point. Yeah. Like I don't post. Like I batch my content, so I make a ton of videos all at once. They're all sitting in a folder, ready to go. And then like I post it every day. I don't care if anyone's gonna like it. I'm don't. You know, it's just it gets posted. Mm-hmm. So I got a formula and I just go with it. Nice. Yeah. yeah that's the way to do it, I think. And, that, and I have to say, I love a blue nose pit bull. I, oh. just, <laughs> I have a soft spot for him. Someday, someday I'll have one. They're the best. Yeah. Well, some of them. I'd love Chihuahuas too. I kind of oh. have mixed. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a great note to take for uh, a lot of our listeners out here. If you, if you guys yeah. want to get into ceramics or content creation of some kind, I mean, this what Tori's saying here about saying just like having stuff in the queue constantly just mm-hmm. creating and then showing it i mean you have to get your work out there especially if you want people to recognize it and for a while um you'll do that and you'll just keep producing content and like you said you're like i don't know if anyone's looking at it i don't really care at this moment but when, when something yeah. if something hits and then they go back and they see this backlog of all this history of all your work that is something that you'll be thanking yourself a hundred times over once that hits, you know? Um, and those are some things that I've had to work on for myself. Um, the, the, this show is in a, in a way, a way for me to backlog and kind of talk about our work and stuff that we go, as we go on, as we talk to more and more people or just explore more things about bonsai and, and art just in general. Uh, yeah, there should always be a steady stream of stuff that you're doing. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I think it's really great. Uh, I see, I see you grinding Tori. So that, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you as well as just, you know, you know, seeing another content creator, just really just putting it all forth, putting like your whole, your whole heart and soul into it, you know? Mm-hmm. So well, thanks. I'm glad you, glad you noticed. Feels good to just yeah. someone noticed. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. I mean, yeah. For the turn. <laughs> but, uh, I'm curious, what got you into bonsai and making bonsai pots? I have no idea how I ended up into bonsai, but I'm attracted to things that are weird. I like weird people. I like weird concepts. If anything is like got a taboo or a weird sticker on it, I want to know more about it. So I kind of pursue those things. And I think Mm -hmm. that little trees just kind of seemed like a weird thing to me. Mm -hmm. So I've been everywhere. Like I just moved moved a lot. I've been to a lot of places, seen a lot of different things, and like I'm sure I've seen them somewhere. And but I ended up getting one off of like a a lady with a truck of junipers, mm-hmm. you know. And 
you know, it died because I still can't do junipers, but I'll work on that. It's process. Yep, it is process. Uh, but I've discovered uh, deciduous trees now, so I, I might not need junipers. We'll just see. Yeah. <laughs> For a while anyway. But yeah, so I just, I had trees. I was taking care of them like houseplants because I was Googling and not necessarily knowing exactly how to, what to look for. So I was keeping them alive. And then, um, you know, I kind of knew about bonsai and I bought a Peter Chan book. And, but I, the one that I got was kind of super introductory and it wasn't incredibly helpful to me. I needed a little bit more, I think. But it got me to see like the kind of pots that they go in and like general care of the juniper and stuff like that and things that were kind of felt way over my head as far as entry level. Mm-hmm. And then I just was like, well, I'm going to put my trees in special pots. And then I started making pots to put them in. And then I ended up finding uh, Mirai mm-hmm. um, kind of before I found it, most anything else. And I was listening to, I've listened to the whole backlog of asymmetry and watched all this stuff was on YouTube and like, I want to get the classes one day, but I haven't. And, but I also found out that like, you know, um, where Ryan Neal lives is the exact opposite of Dallas, Texas. So (laughs) climate wise. So I, I'm inspired by them artistically now, but like something like this is better for like actual learning, like what Mm -hmm. to do in our climate. Cause like. Evans and me share we're like zone buddies we're like eight mm-hmm. fam mm-hmm. yep yeah yeah, it's, yeah. It's artistically I think a lot of it translates from climate to climate but when you're specifically talking about climate and how to care for trees it, it can be so different I mean the Pacific Northwest is a kind of a special place in that regard where like you don't have to try too hard you know because the weather cooperates but somewhere like Dallas Texas I imagine just like in Michigan and Louisiana, it's like, oh my gosh, you have to really kind of make some adjustments to how you do how you do trees. Right? They get rain and winter. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. We're I got <laughs> winter right now. It's like fifty and cloudy and rainy. It's perfect. But nice. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I got lost. My mind is kind of free associative sometimes, so no, you're trying to reel me back in. <laughs> that's you're fine. good. That's how that's how I work too. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how we talk in circles on this show. So there's no worry about that. Uh, but yeah, the as far as the the zone goes and everything, yeah, it's it's a good it's a you know I started out with the show being Boneside Southeast back. If anybody listened back that far, I I'm did. S- I'm sorry because the audio quality was so awesome, but no, it wasn't. Um, but yeah, that was targeted towards people that were in my range, and then. As the outreach went out, I'm like, this is not going to be relevant to half of the world. Um, but our the the eight B eight A, and then going into like New Orleans is even like it's just a little bit more tropical, but still not. It's just such a strange range here, um, and that kind of goes across uh, most of Texas. I know that it kind of hits up, and then once you hit Oklahoma, it changes a little bit. Um, but coming down into like the Carolinas and Tennessee and Kentucky, it's all kind of like this weird, like super blazing hot in the middle of the summer. We get like 115 with like Ugh. maxed out humidity here. Uh, I mean, they say 100% humidity. I think it's even higher just somehow. <laughs> I call it what the soup. Yeah. Mm. Like, like when it, my Midwestern family calls me and they're like, how is it? I'm like, we're in the soup right now. Like outside mm. is a bowl of hot soup. Yeah. It's, it's pretty dramatic. And and then when we get cool, like right now, it's it feels great outside. I mean, it's like 50 degrees, but the sun n- really never goes away. Because like 
like you said, Carmen, you're like, oh, it's 50 degrees and it's cloudy. <laughs> it was like that for like two days and now it's <laughs> now super, sunny again. Yeah, it's sunny. So like our greenhouses could be great right now if they weren't like 100 degrees because of the full right. sun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just it is that ongoing battle. We got to shade cloth our greenhouses and whatnot. But yeah, um, as far as let's go back to ceramics. So as far as, far as ceramics go, um, I'll, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are either they're, they're either involved in ceramics in either some way as far as, you know, they own a good bit of ceramics because of Boneside. That's kind of where a lot of, like I said, a lot of the, the display and part of the, sh- you know, heart, larger part of the show than we, than we, uh, we rarely talk about the, the pots. We, we talk about them whenever we're talking about what type of pot a tree should be in. So we're like oval, rectangle, square, cascade, round, whatever. And then different glazes, but nobody really understands the processes. So tell us, so you, you, you said you were throwing mugs this morning and drying them. Now I've thrown ceramics in, in college and I did, I did a little bit of stuff later on, uh, but bone size kind of taken over. So it's either all bone size or all ceramics usually, but, uh, kind of give the listeners like a, an idea of how your day goes with, with ceramics. Well, Probably better to do like a week since everything like, is uh, has know. to dry for so long. But like from start to finish, like a bonsai pot, basically for my process, uh, with the caveat that everyone has a different process, is that I uh, wedge clay, we'll say like four pounds, and then I throw it on a plaster bat that's going to be a bat that like sucks a lot of moisture out of the bottom so that it's a big flat thing and I can get it off of there without it sticking. Um, so I throw the bat and then I cover it and depending on how stinking huge I made it, it can sit covered and waiting to be able to come off that bat on its own for anything from like two to six days, just depending on how uh, dry the air is in my house. It can't come off too fast or the rim will dry and it will cause an uneven shrinkage between the rim and the bottom and crack. So it has to come off at just the right time when it's ready. So they just sit and hang out until they're ready. And when it's ready, I pull it off, I trim it. Uh, it's gotta be about leather hard when I trim it. So trim the bottom out, put the holes in, sign it. If I'm gonna do any kind of carving or anything, that happens now. If it's gonna get a sculpture, I throw it in a damp box, which is gonna keep it leather hard until I have time to sculpt, cause that's a whole day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's, you know, it's either gonna go on the drying rack at this point and get covered up and dry super slow again because the bottoms are gonna shrink at different rates than the rims because of the, the weird shape that they are. So they dry forever. Um, it just kind of varies. And then once they're dry, now they're a hard mud cake. So they're like the most fragile thing in the entire world. Um, and I have to get that and carry it across my yard without the dog tripping me over and put it in the kiln. <laughs> so. <laughs> Once it goes in the kiln, I fire it to uh, bisque fire, which is like, for me, it's cone 04, um, which is a temperature, sort of. And so then I fire it to bisque, and that's not all the way cooked. It's halfway cooked now. I bring it inside, and for me, I like to glaze, so I glaze my pots. Usually I'm brushing glazes on, brush the glaze on, you know, to a lot of things, because I have to fill the whole kiln. You know, we don't just take one pot outside. That's wild. So, you know, glaze day happens. I always think I'll get this done by noon. And then at 6 p.m. I'm loading my kiln in the dark with a flashlight. <laughs> yep. And it's going. <laughs> and then after that, um, 
the kiln fires to glaze temperature, which for me is a, a, a hot five. I do a five five. So it's it's tip, it's cone six and heat work, but it's cone five and temperature, which is kind of weird, but it's cone six basically for okay. scientific vitrification purposes. Yeah. But it's, uh yeah. And then they're done. Well, I mean, if they're mugs, I take them out and stand their butts so that they don't scratch up your grandma's table. And if they're bonsai pots, then, you know, I look at them hey. and they, <laughs> they're usually fine. So that's it. So yeah. that whole okay. process is like probably to get enough work to fill my tiny little kiln, which is like 23 inches uh, by this little baby kiln at 822 scut. It takes about a month, I'd say, like comfortably to like work the whole thing around. And okay, then. cool. Yeah, I was going to ask how big is your kiln. So yeah, that's a, a smallish kiln, um, and that's that's really cool. I love. I I mean, I took a couple ceramics classes in high school. Like you know, I didn't. I never got to throw anything, but I've played with clay a little bit, and it's always really really fun to like see it come out of the kiln and glaze it, and then see what the glaze looks like because it always looks different when you first put it on, and then to have something explode in the kiln or break when you're taking it out or. It's always like, oh, my God, you always kind of cross your fingers and hope that everything just makes it through okay after all that time you've put into it. So, um, Oh, yeah. It's pretty exciting whenever something explodes in a kiln um, (laughs) because it could ruin so many. (laughs) Oh, my God. Not exciting. (laughs) Exciting from the outside. So, um, (laughs) As far as temperatures go, so temperatures and kilns are are measured in cones. Yeah. So for what what's the range? So let me go look it up. Hottest. That you oh, can go. I, there, it, I think toilets fire something ridiculous, like cone, like twenty. Okay, I didn't realize. Let me look up the cone go. chart, uh, and that's. I think that's like porcelain, right? So toilets are like no. porcelain. There's something. Some, there's no, something there's something crazy. You have to fire, not porcelain, but like hot, hot to get it. Yeah, yeah. they're like crazy hot. I don't know. Okay, uh, but uh, generally, uh, hot is hottest for non-industrial people is about cone ten. Oh, okay. wood fire potters sometimes get hotter than cone tin, especially mm-hmm. in their heat work, which is because it can be a little diff- different for them. Right. And then mid fire is like five, six, and okay. that's going to be like most stonewares. Um, and then like there's low fire stuff, which is going to be like terracottas. Right. And then okay. what makes a clay freeze safe or not isn't where you're firing. It's how your clay vitrifies. That was my next question was, are, are they safe for, for cold? Like what makes it, what makes a pot break in the cold or, or that? So, so what's vitrification? Can you explain that to folks? Yeah. Vitrification is basically, I'm going to give a pour. It's a very high oh, concept. Crazy. So I'm yeah. going to kind of break it down slower. So the potters bear with me here. It's like the clay turns to more like glass. There's less yeah, space yeah. in it. It's less porous. It's measured in a percentage of absorption. Um, mm-hmm. So the absorption tells you how vitrified your clay is. Clay that is 100% vitrified has a 0% absorption. That's going to be like cone tin porcelain. It okay. is basically glass. Like you can see through some porcelains because they are more or less glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but most stonewares have a vitrification anywhere from like 1% to 3 or 4%, depending yeah. on what you're using. I went into a big rabbit hole on this because I, I don't like it. <laughs> Like I was like, my clay has to be free safe, but it's not fully vitrified because it's got like a 2% absorption, you know? So like I went down into it and it was like, uh, basically anything that's less than 5% absorption passes the ASTM standard for outdoor use. 
And okay. then you can test the coefficient expansion, which I made a YouTube video on it. I can't ever really like draw it out of my memory immediately, but mm-hmm. basically you test the boiled absorption against the soaked absorption and you do math, which I laid out in that video, and it tells you the coefficient of expansion, which in that video it says what number it needs to be below. But if you do all the math and the results come out lower than that number, you're good to go because it basically can absorb and the capillary network in the clay can handle the expansion of the water. So that's how outdoor sculpture is done that has absorption but isn't breaking. If the coefficient of expansion doesn't pass those tests, you're going to get spalling, which is where like the pot expands and then the clay separates itself because it couldn't handle the expansion. But the other thing is that clay is not a flexible material. Glass is a little bit flexible. Plastic is super flexible. So depending on when your pot freezes, if it's full of water, something that's really weird about water is that when water freezes, it actually gets bigger in the Uh container that it's freezing. And that's why your ice cubes get weird, even though you didn't overfill them. Right. So if you just watered your tree and you have like a bag shaped pot and this water and soil are totally saturated, like usually in bonsai soil, it's not a huge issue. But if you've got a lot of organic stuff in there and it's like totally soaked and then it freezes that night and it hasn't been cold and you get an immediate hard freeze, like that's just physics. Yeah. It doesn't matter if that pot was made of like, you know. Right. Yeah. Just the volume just. Yeah, it, it pushes yep. on the side. And if you have a pot with an inner lip, which I like, I like those because I'm a bad potter. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> you're not a bad potter. It just makes it really hard to get trees out. <laughs> Impermanent. Just break it off. I'll make you a new yeah, one. There you go. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but no, yeah. So like those kind of pots sometimes, like if you have just, if you just have that horrible mix of like it's full of saturated water and then it hard freezes and expands, that's going to break too. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've not run into the problem of of pots breaking too much because of of um, cold. I think any time, a lot of times when I hear people having that problem, I think it really is more of they were wet and there was a hard freeze, and you know, it just mm-hmm. it wasn't. You know, it just was a. Uh, words are hard. I don't know. Yeah, I got it's you. A though. Bad mistake. Too much pressure on a surface yep. from the inside. Yeah, not enough exactly. release. Yep, the whole yeah. thing just loads. That, that can get you excited when that happens. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> when things blow up, actually, it's, I just find it intriguing when things just go wrong. But wrong. Then it's like absolutely just like out of control. Like nobody's nobody. You can like you said, like you can't stop it. Once the oh, okay. once the container is to its max and the and the water expansion is there, I mean, I mean. You're not gonna witness. You're more than likely not gonna witness your pot exploding. But I mean, it will just crack. Yeah, it'll just uh, crack. Yeah, I wish which... it was more exciting than just cracking. Because cracking is just bad. <laughs> <laughs> like the like, not the pot. I don't want the tree to blow off the bench. But if the like pieces of it just like came off and like you can see it on okay. camera, then you would swear it was a ghost. But it's not. Yeah. Um, maybe it was. Maybe it, it well, possibly. Depends what yard you're in. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> But but no, it, this is really this is all really good information to just kind of add into how we understand to as far as like you said with the freezing thing as far as mm-hmm. will the pot be able to uphold to uh, climate change not climate change uh, changes in our climate as we get throughout the year um, so that you know when it's really hot I mean I don't see I don't think ceramics can get 
ruined by being too hot. But I mean, if we're lava boiling hot, I mean, we're right. all going to be like, ruined by that. 150, but 115 degrees in the summer. Doesn't really bother it. Yeah. Because like you were saying, Tori, I mean, it, it gets it gets cooked. It gets, uh, um, what's the word, the proper word for Vitrified. it? Vitrified. And then there's the other thing that happens during the chemical change in the in the in the the clay and the glaze. So you can have ox, uh, oxi, oxidize oxidation. oxidation, yeah, and re- reduction. Different, like those are different glaze atmospheres. Yeah. So that's something that we'll get into a little bit in just a moment. Uh, but first, we do need to hear from our sponsor, Bonsai Bar. This podcast is supported by Bonsai Bar, the beginner bonsai workshop popping up in breweries all across the Northeast. Bonsai Bar is two hours of tiny tree goodness disguised as a night out with friends. Come grab drinks, create a new tree, and watch as your friends and family get the bug for bonsai. Bonsai Bar is always looking for teachers and assistants, and you listen to this podcast, so you're probably already qualified. Bring your knowledge out to the bar. Apply today. Find event tickets, contact info, and more at bonsaibar.com. Thank you, uh, Timothy Arsenal and Bonsai Bar for supporting our show and being one of our main sponsors. It's so awesome. But yeah, uh, let's talk about glaze atmospheres. Uh, that's something I think is very important. A lot of people don't know about ceramics as well. So uh, what was the first one? It was oxidation. Oxidation is what I fire. It's what most uh, studio potters at, that live in um, you know, the urban sprawl are going to be firing because gas kilns make big fire and drought land is bad. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> I fire electric. Um, gas is really cool. I have fired gas in um, ga- gases reduction. So electric is oxidation. Oxidation means that in the atmosphere of your kiln, there is oxygen. So chemistry is happening when we make things 2000 degrees. You know, that's the thing. So at mm-hmm. 2000 degrees, stuff is going down with like the copper and the iron and all of this stuff. So when oxidation kiln, copper and iron specifically, are going to hang on to oxygen to oxygen because they're homies and so there's oxygen in the kiln they grab the oxygen they're like sweet and so they look green and red and mm-hmm. then in a reduction atmosphere we're taking all the oxygen out because we're burning a fuel source and when you burn a fuel source that fuel source is taking your oxygen so there is no oxygen and the fuel source is demanding more oxygen. So all the oxygen that the iron and the, the copper were like hanging out with, it's like, ah, and it gets eaten by our fuel source. <laughs> and then, then your coppers are red. I forget what happens to iron, but it's different. And it happens. I think iron's uh, blue, isn't it? Like it's like a black, I think. You oh, get more okay. metallic, kind of like oh, a black, yeah, yeah, yeah. shiny iron that hasn't been rusted because oxidation to iron is rust, which is why it's red and oxidation killed. And then you know, oxidation to copper, it's why the Statue of Liberty is green. Bob, we're mm. making connections. <laughs> yeah. So. No, that's good. But yeah, so those are the different atmospheres and the chemistry that's happening to your glaze has a lot to do with what the oxygen levels are doing at a certain point while your glaze is melted. Mm-hmm. So there's that. So people who are firing reduction are getting different effects. There's also a bunch of other different atmospheres. There's a lot of different variants on Raku firing, which isn't usually going to be hot enough to be vitrified enough to be functional in most situations for bonsai or drinkware, but mm-hmm. it is cool and you can do some cool uh, stuff with carbon and all kinds of different effects in that atmosphere firing. And then in a 
there's soda firings, which are super cool, and I'd love to try one. And I the, might the, be wrong about soda firings, but from my understanding of it, you get the kiln hot, and then when everything's really hot and melty, you just blast it with like salt or soda, yes. like baking soda, Big, and that yeah, like it it. It's volatile, volatile. So what happens is that it, it hits the heat and then it just turns into an immediate gas. And that when gas the, fills the kill. It touches everything, gets on all the surfaces and mixes with your glazes and it does cool stuff. But it ruins your kill. Uh, I have volatile stuff in my kill all the time. So like, the, um, Evan, I'm sure you've seen some of my pots that have maybe like a ring in the middle of a toasty ring in hey, like hmm. the center of the pot. That's the uh, car. That's chrome flashing or sodium flashing off of a glaze no. like sometimes i set a pot in a pot and fire it and the glaze will flash so it hey. just makes like a that means those those chemicals came off my glaze and were like gaseous in my kiln and they stuck to what they were close to and created a little like a little mini atmosphere mm-hmm. yeah that's that can do some really cool stuff for sure i know of uh of like I like the word like the the volatile. That's way that's best way to describe it. Obviously, because uh, mm-hmm. it's like you said, it's not really something you really want going on. And I mean, how can it? There is the question: is how how is it ruining the kiln? Like you said, like you don't really necessarily want it in there. I, I I've also had a friend oh. in the past. He did a lot of sculptural work, and he would fire like glass and nails and stuff in his kiln too to just see what it, would happen get all different effects uh but yeah tell us like so ruining the kiln what would that look like with those volatile materials well the thing when something goes volatile that means that we've melted it to the point where it has entered the state of becoming a gas so now it's a gas which means that it's floating around in the atmosphere of your kiln in the case of a soda firing when you're blasting your kiln with excess amounts of sodium you're creating sodium gas inside your kiln and it's going to stick to your elements. So that's like a, that's like a glaze, essentially. That sodium is going to melt and it creates like a glaze that sticks to your elements and, and you don't want stuff on your elements. That's not the greatest thing for them. So mm-hmm. it also will stick to the brick. And over time, um, I'm not sure what the science is behind this, but I know that I've seen it. Over time, glaze eats your brick. Like if you have a piece of glaze on the kiln brick, it will eat its way through it. So if you have a glaze that's been coated in like our kiln that's been coated in like this substance, eventually it's going to eat that brick away over time with each firing. In my kiln with my little baby baby volatile stuff, uh, it's not as big of a deal because it's pretty localized. I don't think I'm like really damaging my elements. Um, sometimes people fire sculptures, they have uh, formers inside of them, like pieces of newspaper or other, usually it's just carbon. And mm-hmm. there's arguments on whether you should or shouldn't fire carbon out in your kiln. Uh, in most cases, it technically doesn't, it's not great for your elements, but it's fine, I would say. It's a hot mm-hmm. take, I guess. Do or don't. Um, and then the other thing is like, just to note, if anyone wants to fire weird stuff in your kiln, please don't maybe don't do that because sometimes things have lead in them and lead is extremely volatile at cone six so Mm. glazes used to have lead in them um and they don't now and the problem is not that when the glaze lead glazes were fired they were fine technically but it's the problem is when they're volatile that lead is going into the air and it's going to seep into your elements and into your brick and into your shelves and your furniture and if you're firing, um, you know, different glasses or, you know, you know, any kind of metal where you're not sure of the complete, com- you know, composition of that alloy, there's always a risk that you could unintentionally be cooking lead, which is not good. Yeah, that's <laughs> not what you want. Um, so can you have, so you have a, 
oxidization kind of kiln. Yeah. So is a reduction kiln when you're using a fuel, can that be like 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 the electric kilns like the ones that I'm familiar with seeing, or is that always like a like a I don't know, like a fire I I don't know how to explain it. Like they always have burners. Okay, they always have. So they're always going to be like a propane fueled thing with burners. Okay. okay. Um, but sometimes they're like the most often that I've seen them in in academic settings is that they're a big stand up square kiln. Most in most okay. cases. Yep. I've with seen a door those. on the front. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. I mean, okay. Cool. Yeah. You're. Cool. And then what is Raku firing? It's a. I don't want to butcher it. So uh, traditionally, Raku firing is something Japanese. What we do here is not that. Right. So I uh, I know what American <laughs> Raku is. I call it trash can Raku, uh, trash can American <laughs> Raku. Uh, you get the the clay, basically you biscuit, I biscuit first to O4, okay. and then you fi- you glaze it with Raku glazes or, or not, and you fire it really fast, usually with gas, and you get okay. it really quickly to, I forget what temperature. It's not super hot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you take it out and throw it in a trash can full of newspaper or other kind of carbon organic material and no. you trap it in there with the carbon and since and the surface absorbs that carbon and it makes black. And then there's no, also cool. ways to get different flashing um, and, okay. and like localized reduction effects. Uh, there's different stuff you can do. I've done a raku firing where we finished the surface with mica, which made it Ooh. really sparkly. That was really Fine. cool. Um, but all my raku pots that I have, I've made myself raku planters and bonsai pots. They kind of disintegrate over time, so oh, it's okay. not something I would sell. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, cool, yeah. I mean, raku firing. We did a little bit of that, like we said, as uh, like I said in college. Um, it is really exciting because the results are quicker. It's a lot more unpredictable. Um, but like you said, they they will break down and then they don't they don't hold up, especially in like hot to cold environments that'll more likely break or crack. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, raku pottering, I, I know that some people will do um, pit fire pottery and then they'll use it for bonsai. Uh, but with pit fire, pit, pit fire is almost it's it's similar in some ways to how, how raku works, from my understanding. Uh, but pit fire, you can get a little bit more, a little bit more out of it as far as uh, as that word we used earlier to help it hold up. Um, vitrification, vitrification out yeah. of it because it gets a little bit hotter for longer, I think, in pit firing. But you can do a mixture of different things. You know a little bit about pit firing, Tori? I know very little because I've never done one, but <laughs> I know that it's kind of unpredictable, and I would. I don't know how you would, but I would probably want to put cones in there just to see where I got to. Uh, I don't really know much about it. I, I would. It depends on how hot you can get it. I mean, a pit fire it depends on the pit you're making and how hot you're going to get the fire because a wood kill is essentially, in a way, a sort of pit fire and it gets real hot. Hmm. I remember yeah. Michael telling this story about doing this big wood fire process with a bunch of different like all these potter friends got together and like had this big outdoor wood kiln and they all it was like walking everybody put their stuff and it was like a once a year thing or whatever and then they all stayed up for you know they took turns like on watch essentially just feeding this fire for days and days and days until like everything was done it sounded like this whole like super kind of fun ritualistic thing and like i would love to get in on that that sounds super cool 
Yeah, Me too. Um, those big firings like that, uh, they're it's it's, like it's kind of like a it's like a rite of passage for some potters yeah. when they get together and they're like, we're gonna do a big wood fire kiln. Mm-hmm. It, usually, you have to build it uh, either out of soft brick or yeah. Um, I think you can. There's another way to kind of like forgot what the other material is that you can actually build it out of because they they I know the older Japanese kilns they are made out of those like it's it's this material kind of of brick no it's it's you could it's almost like what they like a brick layer substance I can't remember what it's called though uh but I know some some ways they're built out of that but Mm -hmm. anyway yeah so like you said Michael I, I know I don't know if a lot of people out there know that but Michael Hagedorn uh was also a potter. That's how he started his career as a bonsai artist, yeah. um, okay. which is just really, you know, that just takes him to another level. Uh, but the uh, a lot of the pieces, I remember walking around his garden, uh, his wood fire pieces, Yeah, those are some of the more beautiful pieces, and they're going to be more sacred and more important to Michael because it, like I said, it's like it's this whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've I've heard about this, but I haven't participated in one before. But yeah, like you said, Carmen, you go out. Everybody's got to make sure that they have pots that they feel committed to. They're like, okay, I am not super worried if this pot comes out weird looking, but I understand the process and what this could be. And mm-hmm. it's just kind of like the luck of the draw thing. If it comes out cool, that's like a one in a million chance your pot's going to look awesome. And you're like, oh, this and this is the best pot ever. I would never sell this mm-hmm. or give it to someone. I just use it for my own person personal things uh but yeah you have to you have to keep the level up and um the like as far as the cone level goes and i'll have tori explain uh cones in just a second here i heard her say that and i think it's also a very important thing because we've been saying cone a lot and i don't think a lot of our listeners who don't do ceramics know what that is but yeah you have to keep your cone temperature up high enough and you have to keep it there it cannot drop or fluctuate it has to be held steady and so, yeah, you have to feed that fire constantly from either the side or from underneath or whatever, however your um, your your big wood fire kilns built, and uh, and then it has to cool off. And so you have to cool it off. You have to gradually uh, bring it down as well. So it's another thing that like kilns. From my experience, I own my own scut uh, kiln. It's a it's a basically a egg timer, not egg timer. It's it's a hard, that's a bad way to say it. It's a <laughs> It's like a, it's like, like a with, easy bake oven. It's sort man, of. You have a manual kiln, right? Have a manual it has a one. kiln sitter and you have to turn the knobs and go from high to low and you have yeah. to go babysit it. You have to get your blinders on and look through the hole into uh, the, actually, the fire. No, it's not. It's actually a fully automated. Um, so it, it ramps up and ramps down by itself. So is I've it got, a paragon set in uh, fire? Uh, I have to go look at. I have not looked at that kiln in so long. Um, I would pull out the kiln. <laughs> yep. Well, me and my wife talked about firing again because we accidentally oh. gave away some of our. We we make pinch pots for kusamono plantings and stuff, and I accidentally gave away a few of them recently. And I was like, just being a really Ruh-roh. nice guy, and I've got like a few of them left. I'm like, crap. So my oh my short- gosh, <laughs> little things ceramics workshop. Oh, oh, big wood fire event. Oh, my gosh. Okay, you, someday. You, yeah, give me like it. five, ten years and we'll you, figure out how to do this. People who do wood firings and ceramics are usually pretty radical into, they're like into ceramics. So you uh-huh. have to be like little things, wood firing, like you'll get you'll get probably like five people yeah. from different parts of the country, but it'll probably be like the coolest <laughs> event ever. That'd be so um, cool. 
and it's and it's like costly too because you get to have yeah. all the right materials together so it, it would be like a whole thing see if we can piggyback with somebody who's already doing one and yeah help but, be like well we'll help feed the fire sure and they'll be my, like well, you're strangers we don't know you get out of here <laughs> my point was with the scut kiln that i talked Sorry. about um was that the full automation where it does everything for you you're doing it all completely manual and like you said you had to get the tori said you get the blinders on so that you can go in there and actually see the cones and while you ramp up and ramp down so uh tell us how the cones work because a lot of people don't know what that is Right. Well, I started with Paragon set and fire. So my original kiln was a uh, a manual old kiln sitter where I completely relied on cones. And now I have a, a touchscreen. But cones nice. are a chemical reaction. They're a temperature and they're also a chemical reaction. So cone six, if you're looking at a cone chart, cone six is a different temperature depending on how fast you're getting to cone six. So... Huh? Cone six, the cone itself is a a bunch of things and stuff and science that is made to melt when the heat work, as in the complete heat penetration of that material, has reached the completion of a chemical reaction that causes it to fall over. We are also trying to reach the completion of a chemical reaction whenever we are firing our glazes and our clay body. Uh-huh. So the glaze getting done enough and the clay getting done enough are a reaction, a chemical reaction that happens with enough of a temperature over a certain time. So cone six just generally is, so cone six at 20, at this first increment of increase is 2165. And then cone five at this other increment is 2167. So like they're kind of the same temperature, just depending on what, how fast you're getting there. So that's that's why you should look at those little cone things because they can't lie to you like a computer because they're not measuring a temperature. They're measuring the chemical reaction. So that's That's so interesting. 2165 degrees is cone six. Yeah, about. (laughs) Yeah. That's a lot. That's something that a lot of people don't realize. Yeah, that's. That's, that's like glowing uh, I mean, hot. That That's like touch it and melt your skin off. So I like to think about opening it when it's that hot. It's one of my favorite <laughs> intrusive thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Just open the kiln. Open the, the kiln. That's, that's when the exciting things happen. Whenever you have a sudden change in temperatures and there's an explosion. don't don't do that there's there are locks on kilns so that those kind of things don't happen especially if you've got people who are not aware of those situations Mm -hmm. i remember at um at the at the university i went to they had a chain link fence and lock when they were Mm -hmm. firing those kilns they would lock that up and it would be locked up for about two whole days just Mm -hmm. to get them up and get them down because if someone walked in there was like you know, Ooh, someone was too yeah. excited or they're like, what the hell is this? And they touch it. Even but, touching the exterior of some of those kilns could just be, you know, a horrible time. Yeah. Um like a horror movie at art school. Like, But yeah, the, the, little, the little cones that uh, we were talking about, there's actually like this little, uh, from what I remember, it's this little piece of, uh, it's just a piece of ceramic, thin piece of ceramic, and it has these little white looking things on them. Um, and that's what Tori you were talking about like when it falls over that's that's when you achieved that cone mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. The, um, the, they're in cone packs that's clay but the little pieces themselves are made of some magic material developed yeah. by Orton yeah 
that which is like you said like we, we don't really need to break down what that's made out of you just mm-hmm. it's just something we know that it works you know yep it's kind of like with uh <laughs> bone size soul we're not sitting here over analyzing pumice i think we know how pumice works um but it's one of those kind of things it's it's it tells you when you like you said when you reach that temperature uh because all the cones are lined up to a certain extent they'll have all those different degrees in which they will fall over and then if you have certain ones left up you said like you said you peep in the kiln and then you could say oh well that one fell and i know it fell x amount of hours or minutes ago so it's time to either you know increase or go down depending on what you're you're trying to achieve with your firing correct yeah okay uh, I was just trying to make sure I kind of ironed it, ironed that part out, because when we we when we talk about uh, stuff over a podcast, it's much more difficult to to uh, see it in your mind, especially people who can't really, you know, like they're, they're thinking like, oh, well, this is how you know. Some people are auditory, some people are mm-hmm. um, visual. It just depends, and just well, if you've never been exposed to those words before, too, like you know, if you've had the art class and you've done it once or twice you might remember the words but if you've never heard them before it's like oh god what does I that think, mean i think everyone like that's artistic in some way or even even not maybe if you're just a, like a numbers and and like analytical type person i think like ceramics everyone should do ceramics at least once in their life um just because it's it's fun it's well it's fun <laughs> it's <laughs> It's one of the dying kind of like arts out there. Like a lot of people do it. Just don't get me wrong. A lot of people throw, a lot of people hand build, a lot of people do sculptural works with ceramics and do different different things. But it's one of those arts that's kind of like sadly not invested in as it used to be. And it's kind of kind of going away a little bit. But at the same time, the people who are good at it are super specialized in it. I mean, there's that's definitely it. people who are mastering it out there. Um, but I mean, it's... It's something I believe that everyone should do, if, especially if you're a creative, because it's such a awesome, like hands-on, like process art. Like you, you know, we're doing bone science stuff over here, and we're trimming and wiring trees and handling them delicately. Like we're we're trying to be careful when we handle the roots, and then whenever we pot the tree into the the, the container, we're being very meticulous about how we do this and the angles and all these all all these things that we're we're getting into apply to ceramics as well because i mean like you said like uh we don't let it dry down at a certain rate because of expansion and and uh and just different rates in which the bottoms and the sides of the container that you built or if you put a handle on there and your handle's not the same um the same you know it's leather hard was mentioned earlier in in this conversation and leather hard is like that optimal time to do sculptural altercations or or uh altercations like it's getting in a fight or something but <laughs> sculptural uh elements like changes to the clay body additions to the clay body um all these different things have to be t- taken into consideration and we have to be just as mat- meticulous in ceramics um and yeah. i and i do i do like i dearly miss working with with clay and and doing all the you know all the processes and stuff it's just having the studio set up is like half the struggle. So, <laughs> so as far as your studio setup, uh, Tori, I know uh, some some ceramicists they have like full on areas or, or spaces they have set up. But how do you set up for your your process of, of this? 
Well, I have commandeered the entire living room. Um, nice. There you go. So we <laughs> have an office, a bedroom, a kitchen, and my pottery studio. <laughs> so the living room is uh, my space. I've got my wheel in a shower curtain closet room thing basically that I made so that when I'm throwing I have an easy plastic area that I can clean up and it's sitting on top of one of those things that protects hardwood floors from chairs so that's easy to clean clay up too Um, yeah it's just I've got tables I use um, (laughs) I use fruit boxes from Costco to organize my work I'm a very organized and meticulous kind of mind. I, uh, I'm i very much an everything in its place kind of person. So everything has a place. I've, I'm a, a machine with a label maker. Like I love so a label maker. I, so that's just how yeah. I get through. Everything's kind of just, it's a small space, but everything is in its place. So I can get around it really quickly. And, nice. And navigation of what you need. I mean, and, you know, whenever you're starting out, like you said, like, just certain spaces of your home becomes your your studio um and you know i've i've talked to um i've done a i've actually done a lot of stuff uh talking with uh byron myrick here well he's actually in mississippi but um i i visited his home several times and been in his studio and he has this whole his whole space is you know like a uh, like a shed that's been converted, like one of those big utility sheds has been converted into a full-on ceramic studio. Um, and so I've seen all those things as far as like how the setup is, how dusty ceramics can be. Um, and just, you know, it, it does it does make a mess if you're not, you know, not prepared for that type of thing. Um, so have you, have you ever mixed your own clays is that something that you've done or you only buy it um just basically in bulk i buy a lot of clay and then i do a lot of clay testing i'm like i'm always looking for a new clay body and i'll order like 50 to 100 pounds of it make a youtube video throwing with it and what it feels like and what it looks like and then all of that mixture stuff goes into my reclaim bucket and then that gets Mm. like slacked down and remixed into basically a new clay body so that's kind of kind of kind of but as far as like i don't have a pug mill and i'm not like mixing a bunch of different like powders to come up with the right kind of like yeah i like my local clay suppliers clay for the most part for the for the meat and potatoes of my work mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah there's there's something to be said about uh whenever you are trying to build a clay from the powders from the grog and from the um forgot the other main ingredient uh felspar um i think that's it and then uh just any other components that you might want to throw into it and then adding in because i mean at that point it's just the powder and and water i mean it's just purely just wet clay at that point but you know building it up from from nothing like we we did that in college like uh my professor basically he was just like you guys get a lot of this material in your tuition but you have to mix all of it. And so that was always like a big thing was learning how to mix the clay. And yeah, going out and buying the clay, it it, it cuts so much effort and so much time out of your like your your modern uh potters practices nowadays. It it's really like, you know, it if you haven't ever baked a cake or tried to mix something together like that, 
and it's just like the consistencies off and you fire you fire, fire your cake you put your cake in fire the oven cake. and it and it just <laughs> melts in the pan you're like oh and you just know something was really wrong you know mm-hmm. um but yeah mixing clay is just like a whole other thing but i think mixing and then having like you're like oh i actually made this clay the the way you know i wanted it to come out like this and sometimes look at a draw for me because i you know i would just kind of mix until it was just sticky enough and i was like all right this that's good enough scoop it up put it in the bucket we'll use this later but that whole process from that rawness of just raw clay to building it up bisking it firing it again with the glazing tech different glazing techniques is so gratifying especially when a glaze goes right and you know it does take it takes a long time to you to understand all that glazing process um and i know you can do multiple firings even still like it's not just like you know bisque glaze fire you could bisque glaze 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 you know like like i was mentioning earlier i had a friend he he would fire a piece you know five to seven times before he was satisfied with the way the glaze came out on the piece um just depending on what he was trying to achieve but of course he was firing lower temperatures i believe but that's that's a whole other matter for sculptural stuff but um but yeah and i think something also to uh we could bring up a little bit is when you said uh sculptural stuff we if you go look, look at um what's your we'll just kind of shout you out a little bit here what's your blue nose trading all the time <laughs> all the time is that it's, is, it's, it's no it's blue nose trading what was the question sorry bluenosetrading.com yeah okay so blue nose trading if you go over there uh you have a lot of sculptural pieces so is Those that are so fun that process there is obviously going to be different from from hand throwing and hand yeah. throwing means using the wheel and spitting the clay and you know forming so is there a different way you approach your sculptural pieces well, I, I do sculptures as a wheel thrown and altered. So I'm still using the wheel in my sculptural work. It's usually the base for the form or the place where the sculpture is going to hang out. Um, I am an intuitive sculptor. So uh, Mike, Mike was talking on an episode where he's like, I can't believe some people just feel it out with their hands and then it's there. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. exactly how I make everything I nice. sculpt. Like yes. I can look at a photo kind of to get proportion and shape and uh, but normally I just go for it especially with the dragons. I sometimes I don't even know what the dragon's going to look like. I'll just start squeezing the clay and if I had enough clay that it's really long, it's a long dragon. If mm-hmm. I had enough clay in my hand that it I don't weigh it, you know, I just like grab some clay. And like yeah. if it's short, it's a short and I just like I feel it out. I don't know. I just think in like I told my professor in college that I think in like equal and opposite force. So I kind of in my mind can think like if I push here, it's going to come out here. So uh-huh. that's how I kind of manipulate it in my mind. But then I just kind of intuitively figure out shape. Uh-huh. And if you watch any of my videos, I kind of cut it out, start, started cutting out a lot of my fussing with it. But you can just kind of watch. Just I just squeeze it till it's there. Uh-huh. <laughs> squeeze it till it's there. I mean, yeah. it's a, horrible. I'm a horrible teacher. Mm. Oh no! Like it's hard to teach intuitive things because I I struggle with that too. There's some things I have no idea how to explain, but I can do it. And trying to communicate that to somebody else, like watering, is one of those things. Like yep. you can explain it to a certain point, but at, at another point, you just have to like 
figure it out. You know, like, I don't know how to explain. Like, I just know that plant's thirsty. Look at it. Right, exactly. Exactly. And like, <laughs> this is how you do it. And this is how I know it's enough. And like, it's just experience and feeling it out and just kind of having this knowing. Mm, like, that's, that's funny. Like, thinking about it, it's like, whenever I was talking to one of the bonsai professionals here for the first time and him trying to explain to me how he approaches a, a piece of material to start trimming or if he's going to make a decision you're you're saying like oh it's so hard to just just explain it to people that like the intuitions that you have with it and it's and he would literally tell me he's like just feel it man Mm -hmm. i'm like like, what does that mean he's like (laughs) he's like you have to be the zen i'm like okay like what Mm -hmm. i have to embody zen he's like i'm the embodiment of zen all the time i'm like okay all right, man. So it's like, it's very, it's, it is very hard to explain those things that, that you feel come a little bit more naturally from sense or just from, you know, you're just, you're just, you're in it. And that's, mm-hmm. it's a part of flow as well. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like you said, you throw the form on, on the wheel and then you take that form and you, you alter it. And that's, you know that's something that a lot of people don't realize with a lot of these sculptural pieces too is that i've met potters that will go in and they will do functional pottery and that's kind of like that's their bread and butter that's that's what they do they make cups and bowls and plates and yada yada and um and then their sculptural parts like ah well i put a handle on and then sometimes i'll put like ripply things on the rim and i'll take my uh my little my tool and i'll cut away chunks and do like you know something there but then, then I've met uh, sculptural ceramicists, and they're like, "Screw throwing on the wheel. That's not cool. That you know, they want to be like, they want to be like punk about it. They want to be like, that's you know, that's where that's where people who are trying to do ceramics start. And it's that's I don't think that's necessarily true because one of my favorite uh, types of ceramics was always the the jug, uh. and you put the face like the face jugs. Have you ever seen those, Tori? Yeah, I've seen a few people make them. And there, that's that's my favorite, like combination of sculptural and hand throwing technique, because making a jug is in like I said, me me and my wife did ceramics back when we were in college, and Caitlin was way better at making a jug than I was. So you're you're throwing first. You have to throw a near perfect cylinder with good thickness from top to bottom and then you have to be able to manipulate the clay out you have to push the clay out into a nice round shape whether you're going to be you know like a belly jug or you're going to be more of like your classic like straight wall jug and it rounds up at the top when you get to the top though getting it to pinch in and to narrow up and then give you the neck of your jug and then and then trimming that and not completely just distorting the clay or tearing it or collapsing it. That is so intricate to me. I love that whole process. But before you close it up, those that can go in and then sculpt a face, and it, it could be a face of like something more serious. Uh, I knew this ceramicist, he would do, one day he would do a clown just for fun. And then another ah. day he would turn around and he would do a literal portrait of someone he knew. And it was like, oh shit. You know, like, and then he would close it up on the top and it was just, that's, I have a couple of those face jugs sitting around that he's made. I just love those pieces. And then you get to glaze them and they get, 
all kinds of awesome effects on the sculpture. So um, I don't know. I'm just gushing about one aspect of ceramics, but there's it's not just throwing and sculpture. They can mm-hmm. be combined in really wonderful ways. Mm-hmm. I could do ceramics forever. I think that's what I like most about this medium is that I could can continually grow through ceramics and never run out of techniques to try. I mm-hmm. kind of view my whole process as a, as a process. So like everything is process in ceramics. And then I think of myself as an artist as also a process. Mm-hmm. So it's all just like this continuation through time where every pot is kind of like an iteration, like a snapshot. But when we talk about artists, we talk about their bodies of work and especially to about people who've, you know, passed away. It's like, oh, this was all their work. You know, you look reflectively back at it and I just try to look at it while I'm in it. Like I'm making the body of work and it's like a process. And, you know, with ceramics, you could be doing slip decorating this year and graffito carving the next year. So painting with clays and then moving into carving with tools. Like and Mm -hmm. there's endless different things you could move through. And I like being open to all of that and somewhat resistant to being stuck in any kind of one style because it mm-hmm. feels like the death of growth to say like this is me now and i only do these things yeah, yeah, but yeah. also like getting back to being a potter you know i do have some things where from a pottery potter standpoint i am a mug yes. machine and i have just come up with designs that are popular and that i can throw as fast as possible while still making something super nice and that's like just a different approach to my work too. Cause like, you know, I'm like, okay, well, how much can I make off of these and still make them excellent mm-hmm. and then have that work? And then, but also have this, this like my bonsai pots, like I don't really do that with those because I'm always kind of making those more of a, an expression and a search through all this mm-hmm. nuanced waters. <laughs> I think that's a, a hard thing for an artist who's trying to make a living is to be able to like stay true to themselves and to the art that they're making but also provide a product or something you know that's going to support them in the process so i can totally see that making bugs i mean you're still making beautiful stuff it's still art it's still you know you're putting time and effort and trying to make beautiful pieces but it's something that people can relate to easily and will purchase and can help fund these you know further artistic endeavors and i know in the bonsai community there's amongst the professionals, there's this same kind of struggle of, okay, well, people are going to buy the $20 S-curve or whatever, you know, but the $3,000 tree that they've created, it's going to be harder to sell and, you know, only a certain type of person is going to look for it, but that's where, you know, kind of your heart is. And so Mm -hmm. it's trying to find that balance between how can I make a living and how can I do art can be really, really tricky uh, in this day and age. Yeah. For sure. I mean, we live under the, the social constructs that we live under, so we have to Gosh, work yeah. within them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, sometimes when it comes to pieces, there are some pieces that I put so much time into and so much work into that I just want to give the piece away to someone who I know can complete the composition just yeah, so it can yeah. be done. And, and it's not like I don't want to price it because when you price sure. it, it's like, well, honestly, I, you know, it'd be ridiculous. So mm-hmm. like, you don't try to do that so i've reached out with a few artists including evan to do some mm-hmm. different kinds of uh work with some of my big sculptural pieces and cool that's super cool yeah i love that that's great yeah. and i still i do have that pot i know i haven't talked much about it because i was um i was going to wait till i 
you know. He was waiting for the moment. Okay. I was waiting until I have something <laughs> in it and it's ready. But well, I do have it. a secret. But you do like it, right? It's cool. Oh, oh it's a okay. great pot. I'm yeah. excited. I haven't seen this pot. I Did will, you show me a picture of this? Okay. Uh, I think Just so. Just send me a picture. I'm gonna I'm gonna make the thumbnail of this episode the the alligator sculpture. Oh, that's, that's cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah. but but I, once I have a tree picked out for it and everything, it's just I have to wait no. till springtime. Oh, of for course. It to no, I wasn't trying to pressure you or anything. No. I, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> feel but, the pressure. But no, uh, I, I like the conversation where it was kind of going earlier with the making mugs versus making the S curve, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of something that I get into now is that. You, yes, you have to sell the S curve tree or the or the mug, but that has to be done well but enough that, uh-huh. for people to be able to see it. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you can make the S curves all day, but if it doesn't appeal to a broader audience, like like you were saying a second ago, Carmen, uh-huh. then it's easier. It's if it's not easy to relate to. If you're like, oh, this is my interpretation of the generic Miyagi. Uh, S curve, informal upright, little bone size shoved into a pot, and I just trimmed the pads out. You can do it really well, though. You can do mm-hmm. a well made yeah. S curve, mm-hmm. but don't overwork it because then if you overwork it, then it becomes something that's not generic. Okay. Uh, or you know, you won't be able to sell it for a decent mm-hmm. price. You'll be able to sell it, but like like Tori said, you'll put a lot of work into it, and then you'll be like, oh, I don't even know pricing this would be ridiculous yeah um and, and i don't so, mean to say that your mugs are s-curves because oh no are, no i understand your mugs are gorgeous. <laughs> just it's one of those things people can no i no, got you no okay. but the the mug though is extremely important in my opinion to ceramicist bodies of work i love be- a mug because yeah because everyone could use a mug for anything they could use it for mm-hmm. coffee tea you know milk water whatever you you know even alcoholic beverages if you choose paintbrushes um, paintbrushes for your water to <laughs> to you know i've used i've used cups and stuff that i was like oh this is not a great cup i wouldn't mind it as a paintbrush reservoir and you um, break the handle off break the handle off on accident or on purpose or whatever and you want sharp edges if you love that kind of stuff when you like to run into a lot of risk when you're painting uh but but no like when you see a mug if you see a potter who's at work and you you see their wares and they've got, you know, maybe they'll have some bowls, some plates. They'll have a few sculptures they may have had, some some pottery stuff for, not pottery, obviously pottery, some planters for miscellaneous projects that, or this or that. But I always go straight to the mug. I pick up the mug and that tells me everything I need to know about oh, that yeah. potter. Yep. Because if they are not willing to put the time into that most important piece like you said Tori like this one's gonna sell I know people need these people want these if you don't put that time in that then that's gonna tell me right off the bat what the rest of your work is like Uh Um, because mugs should be you know usually they should be light they should not be heavy footed they should not be uneven they shouldn't be wobbly unless you're going for a wobbly look which you know every once in a while that comes up Um, and because mugs are super intentional you know Uh like they should feel good they should feel good in the hand. They should be clean. They should not weigh a ton, because if they weigh a ton, then you put liquid in there, and it's like you're carrying around a <laughs> and a, it weighs two tons. A, a weapon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then, and then the glazing and everything and anything that's done to it, if it's drippy and sharp on the bottom, like you said, you don't want to scratch people's furniture. I mean, 
this is all comes with pride of of your work. And if this is the okay. simplest form, and I know we talk about this every once in a while on the show when it just pertains just straight to bone size, like, well, I just don't want to have to think about making an S-curve. And it doesn't always have to be an S-curve. It could be right. a generic broom or a generic upright or a generic, you know, just the cascade yep. juniper. If they're done well and there's intention, that is a my opinion is a better reflection of people's I, yeah i totally agree if it's artists. done well regardless of what it is as long as the work is done well that's the most important yeah. thing yeah and and i love i love ceramic uh mugs and oh yeah i always you know if i like a potter and i don't have a lot if i don't have a lot of, uh, i don't have a lot of money if i usually don't have a lot of money <laughs> and they're and i know that their mug is like 30 to 40 bucks depending on i mean some some potters hold their work in higher you know, prestige. One hundred million dollar mug. <laughs> I've I've seen them go for not a hundred million, but I've seen a hundred dollar mugs. Now, they might have had something done special to them. You know, there might have been some extra thing thrown onto them. But usually, the the ballpark is in in my opinion, it would be like twenty to forty bucks, mm-hmm. and that's your production mug. And I usually pick one up. I have a cabinet full of just random ceramic stuff that people have made, people that I appreciate, um, you know, friends and stuff like that. And so it's just, you know, like that, in my opinion, has always been the most important thing. Um, okay. Now, when it comes to bonsai pots, which I feel like uh, I was going to make uh, a little bit of time to talk about bonsai pottery and just the anatomy of. Um, I don't want to d- deep dive too far into it, but, you know, because it could be a whole other episode on its own as far as what makes a bonsai pot. Um, okay. What's that? Good. I've got a whole philosophy for this. <laughs> Let's <Yeah>. go. <laughs> Philosophize yeah. me. So, yeah. yeah, go ahead. With When it comes to, to any kind of form, and especially bonsai pots, I'd like yeah. to think about, like, what can you take away from something before it's no longer that thing? Ooh. So, like, if you take just a general, a general basic round, like, if you take the feet off, like, is it still a bonsai pot? Like, yeah, technically. Okay. And then, like, you know, if you take the drainage hole or the extra tie-in holes like is it still a bonsai pot like it's less convenient but yeah technically if you take away all the drainage holes like is still a bonsai pot it's like well technically there are certain things you could maybe do without drainage if you wanted to be weird and then you can take away the walls and now it's just a slab of clay and i've seen things planted on slabs so now Yeah, so it's kind of like that. So you think about it like you strip it all the way down, and then once you have it down to the basics, you think, what do I want to add back? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. everything you add back once you've taken everything away has a lot more power. Yeah, yeah that's a good way to I like this. It. That's really interesting. So that's kind of how I look at like what to add back. So my work, I like to think of as like it's loose and tight. So mm-hmm. like it's, uh, you know, there's... They're straight walls, maybe, or simple forms, but then a little more loose. Like there is, well, I like wobble, so I always, I always find those charming. I look, I'm like, okay, cool. So there's that. Then like the feet, I like to add feet drainage holes. My drainage holes are inspired by jumping spider eye patterns. So that's, Ooh. if you're ever looking at them, that's why they're like that. Then, I hope that they still are functional, but yeah, they. That's why I make them straight across like that. That's amazing. I love jumping spiders. <laughs> Me too. And then like, you know, if you have a simple form and you use a glaze that's louder than maybe is normally appropriate, it's still toned down because it's not like it has like giant cloud feet carved, you know, craziness and then also a loud glaze and like a <laughs> wild rim with all kinds of stuff. So like if the 
the pot's subtle and the glaze is loud, then maybe it's a little more balanced. This is kind of how I kind of look at some things. And then and sometimes I like to just take everything to the extreme just to look at it. Maybe not make yeah. a make a career out of it, but just do all the things you're not supposed to do or all the things you are supposed to do as just an experience to look at it, just to see mm-hmm. what, it, what it did. Yeah, yeah, I was looking at your pots and I was noticing that a lot of the the simple ones, simple forms have these really bold colors. And I kind of love that. And it doesn't feel like too much because like you said, you don't also add all of the other things. It's like you pick a thing to feature and you balance it out with the other pieces of the pot to make it to make it work. And that's really, really fun. Some Good gorgeous evening. stuff. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, I'm in love with this literati uh, mug, by the way. Sorry. I keep <laughs> looking at it. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. get that. <laughs> Um, but Thank yeah, you. as we get towards the end of the show here, we do need to, uh, hear about our other sponsor for the show. So, uh, thank you Bonsai Central, uh, for sponsoring today's show as well. Uh, it's going to be an amazing show. It's actually going to take place in Collinsville, Illinois. Um, and so this is going to be on May 3rd to 5th next year, 2024. If you're listening to this to a, a, another, uh, abstract date. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be an all weekend convention and it's going to include art bonsai artists, uh, guest artists such as Bjorn Bjornholm, Tyler Sarad, uh, Maria Heidek, Andrew Robson, uh, Young Cho, Mario Stimberger, and there's going to be plenty, plenty of workshops to sign up and just work on really awesome material with them. There's going to be Twisted Junipers and Seca. Uh, Hanuki cypresses and all kinds of really cool material that you just would not find at regular conventions or shows like this. Um, and then we're going to have all kinds of vendors there. We're going to have vendors from all over the United States because this is going to be a comparable show to the national show in New York. So uh, make sure you mark it on your calendar. Um, there's roughly about 160 days to go. Um, I thought I was going to be a lot more personable with the dates on this and be like, we've got 170 days to go. We got, but like at the time that you listen to the, the show, which is not going to make any sense, but yeah, go over to bonsai-central.com and go register for the event. I suggest anyone that's getting into bonsai, definitely go. Anyone that's advanced and more intermediate in bonsai, definitely go. And you probably know where this is going, but yeah. Uh, check it out. It's going to be a great show. And thank you, Bonsai Central, for sponsoring our show. But yeah, let's go move on to the Bonsai Word of the Week. Um, I don't get to do this every time with our guests because sometimes the guests are scheduled a certain way and we just have to kind of go through the episode. But um, if you want to, Tori, we can do a Bonsai Word of the Week. I would love to. I was super... Last night, I was wondering what the word would be for my episode. <laughs> um, so... We're, we've been going through a section of of different things that you do with with uh, bonsai. Like we did the well, like as far as branch placement go, we did the bar branch. Uh, we talked about whorls, but I think well, and we also did the back branch of it of the tree. But I don't, I don't think we've done the 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 starting branch, the first branch, or um, I have to look up and see if there's a, an actual word for it. But it's the. I believe there is. Let me, let me look Google. it up really quick. I'm gonna do the Google. No, no, no. The Japanese terminology is like I was using it. I used a lot of those Japanese words earlier, but it would be nice to know the Japanese word for it. But it is the first branch, and 
that is a very, very important branch. If you find the word, just let us know, uh, Carmen. But yeah, uh, so for you, Tori, since you're like, what's my bonsai word of the week going to be? I mean, I would say it's the most important branch on the whole tree. Yes. Yeah, because it's the defining branch. It's the it's the branch that tells us everything we need to know about the entire structure of the tree and everything that that should be expected through the rest of the tree. Um, so as far as its angle, its movement, its size, and its placement on the truck tells us everything we need to know. And it can be used in several different ways. It could be used as just a regular just branch coming out of the main trunk, or it could be a, a pseudo or a fake first branch. Um, not fake, but just a pseudo first branch that just kind of tells the viewer how old supposedly the bonsai is trying to be and also could could help with any type of movement that's going to occur through the rest of the tree as well. And pseudo first branches are kind of their own unique thing, but I find them to be very intriguing, especially in older Japanese designs. And then also another thing to consider is, as well, another alternative to a first branch could actually be a separate trunk, like uh, especially on deciduous yes, trees. Okay. Deciduous tree could have another trunk that represents the first branch and then it has its own little first branch on it that could start the movement of the tree. Mm-hmm. Did you find the, the name for the uh, the Japanese word for it? I haven't. Oh. Internet's letting me down. Oh, okay. It's fine. Um, yeah, so this is a branch too that we call the key branch or the directional branch. Um, a lot of times it tells you which direction your tree is flowing, but sometimes it's not actually flowing in that direction it's the negative space that that branch helps to create so the tree is actually flowing the opposite direction but yeah it's one of the most important branches on the tree it really starts your story so very important um i found the word by the way well okay what is it it? it, it's uh it's spelled i-c-h-i-n-o-e-d-a okay yeah i mean i'll I'll, I'll give it a shot (laughs) hold on um, but yeah, while I'm trying to figure out the pronunciation on this, what do you think, Tori? So yeah, I'm just learning, listening, mm-hmm. listening to concepts of design and thinking about it and how it relates to my stuff, debating going outside and looking at all my trees and finding a first branch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, is it uh, Ichinoida? I think that's kind of close to it. Ichinoida? Does that sound right? <laughs> I know I'm always the the best one for pronouncing things on the show. Just leave it to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, you, it it yeah. I don't know. I can't pronounce it. Yeah, I don't fine. have a frame of reference to even guess if that's right or wrong. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll put it in um, the key branch, the directional branch, the first yeah. branch, the primary branch. It, it is the most important branch though, because one of the first things that we do is find the front of our tree when we're designing, mm-hmm. and then. After that, we have to kind of decide, okay, we have the front, the Nabari looks good here. As we go up the tree, the trunk line is telling me this, like, is it leaning or is it relatively straight or is it like a really hard twist or is it compressed really awkwardly or really gracefully in some way? And then you find that first branch that emerges from the trunk at at a appropriate angle. Um, Obviously a branch that's pointing straight up it's not going to be a great first branch, but anything that has a little bit of a degree of almost like parallel to the trunk uh, or perping, uh, not parallel. That would be kind of ridiculous looking, actually. Perpendicular to the trunk. 
Um, I don't think you can have a parallel branch. I mean, you can't have a parallel branch. I've seen I guess, it. yeah. In some instances, at it just some pins. point, it's going to perpendicularize itself to the tree. But yeah, yeah. Um, I'm using all these angles and descriptions incorrectly, but you know, um, whatever. But it's fine. yeah, it's coming out of the. It's where it occurs from the trunk is most important. The angle tells you how old the branch supposedly is, because in deciduous trees, usually their first branch will go up like to a certain degree and then as it comes out it'll flatten slightly and then the edge will kind the, I mean the edge the end will go down and then come back up again and kind of like this up and down graceful look whereas junipers and pines and stuff their branches have a tendency to just kind of point almost straight down and then kind of come down at different angles depending on the the suggestion of different types of snow load or mm-hmm. the growth habit of that particular conifer and then Evergreens and tropicals are just weird because they don't really have a frame of reference when it comes to larger specimens sometimes of what they could look like or what they will look like. So, yeah, the first branch doesn't always look the same and it's not always placed in the same place, Mm -hmm. but it's going to give you expectations for how the rest of the tree should be. Yep. So, but do you have anything to add to that, Carmen? Correct. Yeah. I agree. It, it, it depends. <laughs> I think you pretty much covered it. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a super important thing when you're trying to, to design a tree and looking at your raw material and trying to figure out, okay, which branch is going to be, you know, your first branch. And a lot of times with a conifer like a juniper or a pine, you don't always have the branch low enough on the trunk. And so you make a big drop branch from somewhere up way higher on the trunk, but you move it down to where, you know, the first branch should be in your design. Yeah. Um, so, so discovering this branch is, is always very key to, to your design. And sometimes, you know, they fit within the silhouette and then there's other certain styles, especially with some of the pines, you know, this big welcome branch that really just kind of sticks way far out there. It's really dramatic and kind of an, an um, exaggeration of what, you know, the first branch is supposed to be. So and, there can be that, right. or it can be a nice, you know, a smaller branch that, you know, fits more in the silhouette, but, um, yeah, you should always be able to to find that first branch and um, and it should should tell you the story. Yep. So thank you, Word of the Week, for being the Word of the Week. We really appreciate it. Um, word so, of the Week says you're welcome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you guys carry that with you? I know that's that's like, that's one of the first, it, it seems obvious to some people who've been doing bonsai for a while, but like I said, we got to bring it back down to earth every once in a while and be like, this is a beginner's bonsai podcast. So mentioning these things, I mean, that's that's like a really, it, it, it's probably the most important thing. If your Nabari is good, if it doesn't have to be perfect because Nabari develops over time. If your pot is not what you need it to be, you can change the container whenever the time is right. But that first branch and the placement on the trunk, if it's mm-hmm. not right and you have to remove it or if it's too big or it's too small, if you don't get that right, then the rest of the tree just doesn't feel it feels funky it doesn't feel right so that first branch is always super important it could be anywhere from you know moggy up to literati you know literati has first branch um and a lot of them don't seem like they do but the majority of the time especially in japanese literati styles they they have to have that to set the precedent for the rest of the tree so um all right well let's uh let's go into the shout outs and just uh just say uh for for Tori since she's our guest today. I know we mentioned uh that 
Blue Nose Trading is your just kind of your encompasses everything that you do and also your YouTube channel. Is there anywhere else that people might want to go and check out your stuff or is that what else we got? Well, it's uh, Blue Nose Trading on every social media, pretty much ever. And, you know, it's BlueNoseTrading.com, Blue Nose Trading on YouTube. Uh, I'm starting a ceramic art podcast called the Bonsai Podcast. Ah, I've been interviewing cool. a bunch of different bonsai potters and artists that do ceramics. And uh, a lot of that is up on my Patreon right now. I recorded it as a TV show kind of vibe. So I recorded all mm. like 10 episodes at once, edited them all. They're all in like my Patreon. And then they're um, going to release once a month or twice, maybe once or twice a month throughout 2024. That's so, so cool. That's... If you want to binge it, you can go to patreon.com slash blue nose trading. And if you just want to hang tight and get the episodes as they kind of come out, they'll be on Spotify and YouTube. That's that's awesome to hear that you put together um, a whole just I, I like the concept of getting a bunch of episodes together and being like, all right, it's like a whole season. I can I can just like hold this and people who want to hear it now can hear it now. But like I'll release it in chunks like for us when we record these episodes, we're just like. You know, because we're so we're weekly and we're so on topic, depending on yep. you know, like seasonal changes Ooh. and like events and stuff. Uh, I would love for that to be the case, but you know, <laughs> I I just like I was I thought hard about how I wanted to do a podcast when I was setting it up, and I was like, I don't want to be beholden to this thing every week because it would stress Damn. me out to have that kind of responsibility. Man, I was like, so how I'll just focus on making evergreen <laughs> content, and yeah. then when I when I have the time to record and people have the time to talk to me. I'll record it, but then there's no rush to edit it because it's nice. just kind of backlogged and then I'll release it all early. And I mean, I'm still going to be getting more episodes than what's there right now, but I'm going to sure. move a little more comfortably. Nice. Would, wouldn't I love that, that be the life? We, yeah, we got to start batch recording. This is... <laughs> no, no. Part of no, our show is, is go into it like this. I like your guys' format. I think there's just a lot of different ways to do things, yeah. and it just depends on the content you're making. So Absolutely. So for, yeah. for your show, uh, what'd you call it again? It's the Bonsai Podcast. That's, that's adorable. I love it, show. <laughs> okay, so... Um, is there going to be like it's going to be on Spotify and everything else? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm using Spotify for podcasters to upload it, so I don't know if it's going to make it to Apple or how that works, but I'll figure it out when I get to that bridge. If it's not Every. on Apple, whenever it launches, I'll figure it out. So it might yeah. be a delay on Apple, but it's going to be on YouTube um, with video when people are available to have video and without video and just sound when it's not there. Cool. Um, all the the Patreon has all the videos on it now for you know everyone that was comfortable with that. And, and yeah, it's uh, the Bonsai, the Bonsai podcast on Instagram is where I've kind of just made a page to exist in the ether for now. Okay. Um, do you have, do you want to tell us any of the guests or you want to kind of keep that? Oh, yeah. Let me go to my little list here so I don't miss anybody. So far, I've interviewed um, JMA Ceramics, 42 Mice, JS Pots. Ketoy yeah. Ceramics, Rebecca Papez, Red Mountain Bonsai, Mike Hinnigan, Denise Sultane, nice. John Campbell, Eli mm. Akins, uh, and then I have an upcoming interview with Florence Chan, and I've got a few other people that I've reached out to that I need to get in contact with, um, and I'm open to whatever, you know. I mean, Excellent. time pending. I I won't be recording during any Mercury retrograde times. It's just kind of a personal thing, so. Um, oh, yeah. man. 
smart. I just won't do it. So we can schedule in January if anyone wants to schedule. But um, until January 1st, I'm just not messing with that. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta wait till Mercury gets out of the microwave. <laughs> I just think everything has seasons. I try to work yeah. in seasons and I... I won't get too deep into the sauce, but I see astrology as a seasonal practice. So it's kind of just everything is a season. What's your sign? Can I ask? I'm, yeah, I'm a Sagittarius. Uh, Sweet. Sagittarius sun, moon, and uh, Aries rising. Amazing. Yeah. Are uh, you? Uh, oh, I'm I know Gemini. Is... You have to tell me now. Oh my God, you're my <laughs> people. I know, right? <laughs> Virgo moon and Sagittarius rising. Oh my God. In case anybody I, wants to know. Can I we don't be know. best friends? Uh, <laughs> we are. I don't know all of my like. I don't know the You're rising or the. Yeah, I'm, how Is do you he? Know? Yeah, okay. that makes I'm, sense. I'm there, sorry. I have a th- <laughs> I have a theory that there are a lot of Earth signs in bonsai. That was just yeah. There there are. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to look further into that, and I'll get that on the next episode if anybody cares that much. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna need your. I'm gonna need your um, time of birth and location of birth. I'll just text you. We'll about. do that. Just we'll do that. Later. You'll give it to me. Well, I do those as a thing. <laughs> so if you need one, do you one, really? I need yeah. a chart. I've, yeah, this has now it, become an astrology podcast. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'll guys. <laughs> I'll drop it into. You can just. Um, I'll sorry. drop it into the Discord of my signs and everything later if anyone's interested, <laughs> yeah. and then I'll I might say it later if I remember. But anyway, so uh, I'll remind you. Yeah, it's fine. Wrapping up. Uh, so yeah, y'all definitely go check out Tori's uh, podcast show as it releases. That's that's awesome. I know there was a mention of some po- some potters in there. I was like. Oh, that's that's excellent content, you know. And if there's any other potters out there listening, like you, you heard her, like don't 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 expect to record now. But whenever she gets the run, time, don't uh, walk. <laughs> but, it's uh, an email thing, right? Yeah. Right? Like uh, we're on an email timeline. So if you get me an email, you'll get there. What one What's day. your email? Um, probably do Tori Solis at bluenosetrading.com. That's T O R I S O L I S at bluenosetrading.com. Excellent. Thank you. Um, oh my and god, then, the the logo for the podcast is super cute. Thank I'm you. My husband now, came up with it. Oh my god. Yeah. So yeah, y'all keep an eye out for that show. That's gonna be awesome. <laughs> um and then just to kind of shout out the stuff we normally do, you can go over to underhillboneside.com. You can go see out you can go look at my articles that I haven't been writing a lot recently. Sorry, but I will I will work on it. Uh then you can shoot over He's to Evan. our store. Yeah. Shut up. Uh, shoot over to our store <laughs> and uh, and check out what we got going on over there. We got a lot of stuff listed online. I'm listing things and they're selling so much quicker than they used to. So uh, if you don't see a lot of things on there, I'm sorry. We're currently working on it. Working um, on it. Working on it. Everybody calm down. He's working on it. I'm sorry. I'm like... Oh, it's going to add her, car- her commentary. It's like everything I say. <laughs> and then it becomes backhanded suddenly. I'm like, oh. I know I'm not I'm doing sorry. it. I'm not, do- I'm not doing a good enough job. No, uh, you're doing great. I know what I'm doing. I know. I know. What I'm doing. Please I know. go over to my 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 website at underhillboneside.com and go to the link store underhillboneside.store.com. Check out my merch um, for the the show. It's going to be on under little things for our show. Um, and I know we have Tory stuff listed on there. Uh, we need images for the pots. That's why that's not on there right now. But yeah, her stuff is also available in our store, but you'd be better going over to bluenosetrading.com right now at the moment. Um, also for Carmen, your stuff is? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook and the TikTok uh, at Becoming Bonsai um, and follow the uh, Purple Pot Society, the 
in oh my gosh the national women's group of uh the national women's bonsai society um where we work to educate and inspire women to learn more about bonsai yeah and uh hopefully we can get on we can get sam on here uh your co-founder really soon yeah i gotta get back to her and uh just just more notes about purple pot society i mean you don't have to be a woman to join oh yeah we take i know you men out there are listening and you're like, yeah, if you oh, want to support women in bonsai, go ahead, be a member. I'm a member. Yeah. Yay. Purple pots. Uh, I Ooh. want I want everyone that listens to this show to become a member. It's Ooh. it's it's what with like thirty five dollars a year. I think so. Yeah, it's, that's nothing, guys. It's like stop eating McDonald's for like, you know, a day, a day no. and <laughs> three weeks. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. Serious McDonald's order. Uh, we have we have raisin. <laughs> We have raising canes here in Louisiana. I'm sure really? you'll have it in Dallas too. Uh, I don't know. What it is. You know what raising canes is? It's yeah. good chicken with the magic sauce. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Um, sounds good. That's excellent. It's my favorite I eat thing. That. It's my favorite fast food. Okay. It's you know. So if you're ever in this I'll, part of the United I will States, be eventually. Just, yes. Eat we'll some raisin canes. Also, Sweet. I'd like to thank Raisin Canes for just being uh, an unverified sponsor. Just thanks for being awesome. I, I, I love your chicken and your sauce, uh, Todd Graves. And also thank you, Post Malone, for opening the one and only Pink Canes in Utah. It's so If you so guys cool want to you. sponsor our podcast, you can find us on uh, Patreon. <laughs> no, go over to patreon.com forward slash little things for bonsai people. Become a patron and keep supporting these antics and goofy things that, that we say. Um, and we will catch up with you guys Wait, on the next about Mike. one. Oh, because oh, Mike who's not oh, here right now. Yeah, our buddy Mike, who if he was on episodes, I would shout out for him more often. But I'm just now I'm just messing with him. But yeah, KitsuneBoneside.com for Mike Lane. Uh, go over there, you'll see his seasonal offerings. He, I know he's pushing a lot of online classes, which is great because he's in Central Florida. He's like on the tip of Florida where you can't just go drive to him. And it's like an 11-hour drive just to get to, to, to Mike. So go to KetsuneBoneside.com. You can do an online class. And also, that reminds me, our patron tier, our new one, you can get 30 minutes uh, video consultations and classes, private classes with any of the little Boneside people on here. Um, <laughs> so that'd be a good time, right? And that's right. Good. Yeah, I'm that's having some... a blast. So yeah. okay, I'd pay $30 for this. <laughs> but yeah, anyway. So thank you guys so much for listening this week. We'll catch up with you guys on the next one. And uh, thanks for hanging out with us, Tori. Yeah, thanks, Tori. It was a great time. Anytime, guys. <laughs> <laughs>